religio means connection and that we fundamentally need connection when we're meeting in life. And we need a, a set of psychotechnologies that that can afford us things that religion traditionally afforded us. Um, and part of that is, or a huge part of that is actually studying and understanding the, the psychotechnologies of past uh, religious and wisdom traditions, um, as well as trying to study the modern cognitive science and, and how those things interact. Um, I, you know, I, I describe what I do as this kind of the reunification of philosophia and gymnasia, the love of wisdom and the cultivation of the body. Um, and I think that, there, that you can't actually cultivate wisdom without the cultivation of the body. And I think that the original philosophers understood that, but it's been completely lost in modern academic philosophy. <laughs> Okay, Rafe, uh, thanks for being here, man. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely, it's a pleasure to, uh, pleasure to meet you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. So I've, I've kind of come to think of you as like a, a parkour philosopher, um, but I'm, I'm curious, how do you introduce yourself? Um, I usually say that I'm the founder of Evolved Move Play, and that's a kind of method of self-cultivation through a combination of movement mindfulness, nature connection, and um, community practices. And as part of that within the movement aspect and really foundational to everything is my background in parkour um, and how that really helped me transform as a human being and kind of opened me to these other uh, these other aspects of the practices, the, the, the keystone of my, my personal ecology of practices. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm definitely would like to get into the details of all of that and kind of what, what your practice looks like and, and what you're doing. But I think, I guess maybe before that, I'm curious, just what, what would you say you're, you're looking for? What are you seeking with all of this? What am I seeking? Um, a more meaningful life, you know, a life that is very satisfying to me uh, and the capacity to share that with other people. Yeah. Meaning, meaning um, that was, I mean, so I, I came to you just through a friend of mine who, who's is uh, a parkour fanatic. And so I, I was really surprised to see that, that meaning component there. Um, something mm -hmm. I, I resonate with um, very strongly. And um, I'm curious, like, how do you get from movement to meaning? What's the connection there for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually how parkour started, which is what is often not realized. Um, the kids who started parkour, you know, it was basically kids. It was 14, 16, 17-year-old kids who were kind of at the origins of this. And they were uh, essentially all from immigrant communities in the families of Paris. Right? So they had, um, you know, they had their, their, you know, probably some sense of alienation from the broader culture. There was intergenerational trauma from kids who'd come from war-torn areas and Vietnam and other areas that, you know, or their parents had and that that had been passed down. And uh, a lot of the kids who started parkour were really struggling with school and school was a, was a very difficult thing for them. And so they, they didn't start out saying, hey, we're going to create a, a, a method of overcoming obstacles physically. They started out really just testing how they could become stronger young men. Right? They were inspired by Jackie Chan and Dragon Ball Z and all these things about this idea of self-cultivation. So they're going out and 
and doing, you know, a thousand push-ups and a thousand pistol squats. And then can you jump over this? Can you jump over that? Can you climb this? Can you climb that? It was all just part of this idea of like, how do they become a strong man? Right. So of that group of, you know, there's it's kind of nine guys who get most of the credit, but it was really a, a bit broader community. But of that group of nine guys, uh most of them except David Bell and Sebastian went on to found a group called the Yamakazi. Um, which is a Lingala word, it's a West African word that means uh, strong, strong body, strong spirit. So that that was all really kind of baked into what parkour was from the beginning. But what happened was that when parkour was sort of leaked onto the internet, what we saw was the physical aspect of the practice, right? We didn't see the philosophy. We didn't get a chance to go train with those guys directly and really get a sense for what they were really pursuing. We just saw people jumping between buildings. We thought that's what it was at its heart. And so it, you know, it went viral and, you know, now tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are practicing it. um, And we're practicing it based on the image that we see on a screen. Um, But people did go to train with the French guys and they started talking about, oh, there's, there's something more. There's this philosophy of parkour. And so that idea was there from the beginning for the people who are really deep in the community and dedicated to the community. Um, but the guys who started it were not professional philosophers. They were kids, right? Um, they were not the best educated kids. And so for me, coming into it, I was really attracted to the idea of parkour philosophy right from the start. But I could never quite get a handle on what it actually meant the other aspect of that that was really big is that all those guys who started it were French speakers and they didn't really speak good English. So they, not only did they not necessarily have the language to give a really clear description of what their physical philosophy was, um, those of us in the English speaking world, you know, didn't have a good way of, of, of hearing what they were saying anyways. Yeah. Um, so we had to kind of build it ourselves. And so I, I, Co-founded the first parkour gym on the West Coast in uh, North America. It was the third or fourth gym in North America, and we, uh, you know, we we created a definition of parkour. My original definition of parkour was the discipline of developing the ability to overcome obstacles effectively. Right? And that's a very, it's a technical physical description of what parkour was theoretically about. Eventually, I added this this coda to it, which was end of developing the self through overcoming obstacles, and what I eventually realized was that I think I got all the pieces right, but for the people who founded the discipline, the emphasis was on the, the non-technical. It was on the development of the self through the overcoming of obstacles. Um, so I, I was, you know, I was thinking about all that stuff, and I wasn't quite satisfied with it. I wasn't able to, 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 to make it happen fully for myself in some sense. Um, I was starting to help build the competitive circuit for parkour. I was doing all these things and I was starting to get injured and burned out and struggles with the business. And I was looking for something else and I got really into play and how play was intrinsically rewarding and motivating. And that was really powerful for me as well. But there was still this sense that um, play was a really, really important piece of it, but it wasn't necessarily the highest orientation that I was needing. And it left me a little bit unstructured, a little too chaotic. 
And so I was still trying to articulate it. And I started talking about, you know, the purpose of meaning practice, the purpose of movement practice is meaning. I started talking about that in, I think, 2015. Um, and I started talking about uh, this idea of the self that was worth esteeming, right? That we had really made a mistake by elevating the idea of self-esteem as just something that you cultivated on its own rather than on creating a well-cultivated self that you would admire. Um, and how our culture had kind of undercut all these potential sources of value. And that was when I, you know, so that was 2015 and I was writing a lot of that stuff. And then in, I guess, uh, fall of 2016, I encountered Jordan Peterson and he had this extremely articulated philosophy of how life is about meaning, you know, what, how, what is the map to meaning? Maps of Meanings is his big book. And um, the map to meaning is about the optimal relationship between order and chaos and intentionally entering into that relationship and going through the hero's journey repeatedly. The hero's journey is exposing yourself to um, chaos and bringing something good out of it or exposing yourself or, or breaking down the tyranny of order. Um, and that was like, this is exactly what we're doing in parkour, right? When you mm -hmm. go out to, to confront a jump, you're choosing to engage in the hero's journey. There's something, there's some undefined potential there that's scary and promising. And you have to go through a mental process and a physical process, to prepare yourself to overcome that jump. And somehow it gives meaning to your life when you do it, when you do it right, and when you do it with right intention. Yeah. Um, and then I realized even, even the act of doing that though, is also a way of bringing the positive chaos out of the excessive order. Cause you're looking at the cityscape that's been ordered to prevent you from needing to move in any way except for walking, right? Yeah. And you're saying, how can I reimagine it? How can I bring, you know, in the mythological terminology, the waters of life back into the city, right? And and renew ourselves through it. So I saw parkour as really like this incredibly profound, almost, I think in, in a lot of ways, it is the fundamental the fundamental embodiment of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. So that was Peterson. And then I came to work with Jordan, John Berbeke and got deep into his ideas around how these physical practices take us into the non-propositional ways of knowing. So the procedural, the perspectival and the propositional, or sorry, the uh, participatory. Um, and you know, I, I could go on and on about his work, but sorry, that was, that was so much. <laughs> um, no, that so, was great. That was great. Uh, stop there. Okay. Yeah. I definitely want to zoom in on, I don't think we can assume everyone's familiar with what those terms mean. So I'd want to zoom in on those, but before that, yeah. I want to step back to the, the hero's journey. And like, for, for me, when I think of the hero's journey, I think of, you know, slaying a dragon, right? It's like, yeah. it's a big, you've, the dragon's dead, the village is saved. And there's, there's yeah. a, a sort of a clear objective reason why you're a hero and why it was a good thing. Yeah. When, when we're talking about jumping over a building or, or confronting your fears or doing something um, that's, I don't know, we'll just say less, less easy to classify objectively. Like where would you say that the meaning is coming from there? Like where does, like, what is that, look like specifically for you in the, in the context of 
well, I mean, a dragon is a symbolic representation, right? It, it, it expresses a bunch of things that are implicit, right? Implicit in the dragon is all the things that threaten and uh, potentially are dangerous to us. When you do parkour, you intentionally set yourself in front of challenges that are dangerous to you, right? A dragon is scary because it can rip you apart, right? A jump is scary because you can fall and break yourself. Yeah. So, like, I, I remember I was as a child, um, and really as an adult, but you know, <laughs> the key moment was as a child, one of the really transformational moments in my life was getting to read The Lord of the Rings. And so I read that when I was eight years old and I spent, you know, the next four years basically wandering in the woods, slaying works. Um, <laughs> and I, I remember very clearly, like at 12 years old, having this realization that like, like growing up to be Aragorn wasn't in the cards. Like that was not, yeah, that was not a career path that, that <laughs> available anymore. Um, so when I first saw David Bell, who's the you know the the most prominent founder of parkour jumping between buildings for me it was like a recognition that somehow the heroic was still possible for us mm -hmm. right that we that we could re-enchant the world right mm -hmm. and that the dragons weren't you know there was no dragons out there but the real dragons were always in our in us anyways and it was always about slaying the dragon inside you more than anything else that's mm -hmm. the you know that's the foundation of the hero's journey if you want to kill a dragon in real life you got to kill the dragon inside you yeah. right or sometimes you don't want to kill the dragon sometimes you but you have to confront things right sometimes the proper way to confront things is is to destroy them but sometimes the proper way to confront things is to tame them uh, is to bring them into order is to give them love but in any of those cases uh there's a internal aspect to it that always has to be done right if you don't have the courage uh it doesn't matter how strong you are to smash your lance into that dragon and the courage comes through this internal uh, comes through the choosing challenges and going through the process mm -hmm. and so that's what that's what the, the taking the jump is for me it is it is a confrontation with the dragon mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I guess what I'm hearing is the the physical aspect of parkour is almost like a, a metaphor for the internal work that's that's going on. And yeah, it's, I mean, I think uh, it might be that the hero's journey is a is a is a narrative description of what is embodied in the practice of parkour mm -hmm. because yes it's mental but it's also physical and you can't you can't separate the two and i think that if we if we fall into the trap of thinking oh we're only doing these things because it's actually developing the mind we're we're falling into a frame where the mind is primary over the body and that's mm -hmm. not the case they're inextricable so I think that the internal aspect of what's happening in a practice like parkour is really undervalued and misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be a mistake to think of it as just um, a physical expression of something that's oriented towards the, the mental. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And so, so then if you're going through this process of sort of 
confronting your fears, overcoming obstacles, both in the physical world and the internal world. I'm always interested in, in the sort of translation process from one realm to another. So like, how does that transfer to your personal life, to your psychology, to these other things? You know, is that, is that something that you focus on specifically, or do you find that sort of just comes as a natural sort of offshoot of what you're doing or how do you, how do you approach that? Um, So I would say that uh, that's the, the core idea of what we're doing is how we accomplish those transformations. Mm-hmm. Um, people, uh, when I first started parkour, you know, I was part of this very first generation of, of people who were doing parkour in the United States. And it, it was, it was this extraordinary sort of sense of meaning and transformation that was happening for people. So for me, I and this is actually true of a lot of the early adopters of parkour, I have ADHD. Hmm. And um, the transformation that was clear, you know, was that all of a sudden I stopped losing things. So I would habitually lose my wallet, my keys, my phone, my, my, uh, my my jackets right my mom would buy me like a really nice uh ski jacket and i would leave it in the library like it happened like multiple winters in a row um and when i started practicing parkour my wife noticed like the rate at which i lost things decreased dramatically right i still lost things but um but i was hanging on uh, to wallets for like you know eight months instead of two months um and uh, you know that was a, that was huge for me. Like it was absolutely incredible. And uh, all these people who were doing parkour early on, they all had that sense that that it had this incredible transformation power. And I'd already experienced that through the martial arts as a child because I used to get in a lot of fist fights as a kid mm-hmm. and had a lot of anger. And through roughhousing with uh, a mentor and through martial arts, I was really able to to come to grips with my anger and stop sort of finding ways to to express it in the street so i knew that 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 movement arts could have this this transformational impact something about parkour felt particularly profound for me when i started it um and you know when the new newly converted zealots they're like this is this is the truth like everyone needs to do this we're all fix the world's problems if everyone just did parkour right right um but I remember pretty early on, I was like, ah, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that we say are special about parkour are true of skateboarding or surfing, right? So what's what's unique about parkour? <laughs> um, and I would listen, I would talk to people in other movement arts, and I'd hear the same stories, right? Like I, I remember a lot of people in jujitsu at the time, Brazilian jujitsu, were talking about how is this life changing thing. <laughs> so I was paying attention. I was like, well. Does it matter? Is it just like many paths to the mountaintops and just choose whichever one for you? Mm-hmm. Um, or is there something special or, or, or there are things that are special about jujitsu and things that are special about parkour that are not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was studying that question. And then the other thing that happened is that after the first generation, the second generation, third generation of people are coming in, and they're not necessarily experiencing the sense that parkour is transformational. They're there because it's fun. And it's just, it's the cool new fad on YouTube and people are joining in because it's kind of sexy to do. 
And it's like, well, if it's transformational for me, why isn't it transformational for them? And then as, you know, as we got older, I saw people who were claiming how transformational parkour was and then not showing it in their life. Yeah. So this became, you know, the thing that I was kind of obsessed with was like, how do we actually achieve the transformations that we say these things are all about? Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, I don't think I have all the answers, but I think I have some of the answers. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the intent you take into your training, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go out to practice a jump, um, and it's just for fun, then it might not have transfer. It might have transfer. It might not. If you go out to practice a jump and you're intentionally thinking like, okay, I'm going to experience fear. I want to study what's happening with my fear and I want to become stronger, not just at this jump, but at dealing with fear in general, you'll get better transfer. Mm-hmm. And then if you intentionally try to apply those lessons in other parts of your life, you'll get better transfer. Um, and then you will, you will, I think, do best when you start to build a whole ecology of practices, right? So you can think about a transformation, right? So it's like, okay, you can do a jump that you couldn't do before. So you're more courageous. So that's, that's a physical locomotor expression of courage. Mm-hmm. So then we could say, are you more courageous in other aspects of movement? Are you more courageous rock climbing? Are you more courageous doing uh, jujitsu? Right. The the way that we have to deal with fear in parkour and the way you have to deal with fear in martial arts are distinct, because in parkour you have a lot of time to process what's happening. And in martial arts, things happen basically much more reactively. Yeah. So getting those transfers is uh, is something that has to be attended to. Um, and then when you're looking at are you you know the, the big one for me that you see the the failure of transfer that you see all the time is young men who start parkour say that it's made them more courageous, but can't speak to young women they're attracted to. Yeah. It's like, you have to, you have to start seeing the parkour as a tool to help you in other aspects. And I think most of our lives are really social and relational. So any, any transformation that's happening um, in a physical practice, you're, you're looking to see, does it show up in your social and relational realm? Do you have better equanimity when you're talking to your your girlfriend or your boss because of what's happened? So you want to you want to be attending to that, and then ultimately you want to have practices that reinforce each other. So when you practice mindfulness practices separately from parkour, um, you learn to have better recognition of what it is to truly be focused. And then when you practice parkour, having done mindfulness, you get a physical embodied um, tool to help you recognize and feel the consequences of not being in focus, right? So the two things mutually reinforce each other. And then we can go through the same thing of how there's a reciprocal relationship between, um, you know, parkour and nature connection or mindfulness and nature connection community. But ultimately, there's kind of sort of four primary relationships that we experience life in, and then maybe two higher order expressions of those, uh, which is like the relationship with the different aspects of the self, 
right? The mind body connection, mm -hmm. the relationship to the, the social, uh, uh, relational world, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and the relationship to the natural world, the physical world. Um, so mind, body, community, nature, and mm -hmm. then one level up, there is this aspect of like spirit, spirit, which I don't mean, you know, etheric entities <laughs> like when i say spirit what i mean is the way in which groups of individual neural networks or agents create uh, a, a collective intelligence that's that's above all of them and it impacts them if you're on a team in basketball that team has a spirit that's not in any one individual only it's mm -hmm. emergent from all of them uh and so how do you be in proper relationship to that and then there's the sense of the thing, the people who've come before us, because they, everything that forms the world that we live in, right? And everything that comes after us in some sense does too. So that's like the concept of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. So it's these six things that we need to have virtue in relationship to. And so a well-developed ecology of practice will help us be in right relationship to those things. And ultimately that is the source of meaning in life. The right relationship on those all those different dimensions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's within the self, body, yeah. mind. Yep. Uh, self to other to community. Yeah. To, to environment. Yep. To the spirit to something higher the yep. emergent force, and to are you saying ancestors and. Future yeah, past generations and future, are, the ancestors are both. Yeah. So I, I, I count five there. So, so mind and body. Someone? Mind and body. They're, they're one and they're also two. Oh, okay. okay. Right. Mind to body, body to mind. Because we, we, we do practices that are physical and we do mm -hmm. practices that are mental. Mm -hmm. And then we also, you know, all the practices sort of everything uh, like seated meditation is a physical practice. Yeah. Right. Parkour is a mental practice. But we're just sort of creating this bifurcation there because the, the attention is primarily in the relationship to the, of the body versus the relationship of the mind. Okay. Okay. So then in, in, this, in this vision, the meaning is, it's almost, would it be fair to say it's like a byproduct of this relationship and when the relationship yeah. is... Meaning is a, um, like my, my friend John Ravecki would say, that the meaning is a kind of analogy that we use. It's, uh, we, we want our actions to be meaningful uh, in the same way that you want to write a sentence that has meaning, right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that you can have a series of words and they can not arrive at anything. Um, you can also like be acting in your life and feel like, there's no sum to those actions. There's no coherence. There's no, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, right? That's that sense of alienation or anomie. Um, and <clears throat> so that's the sense of meaninglessness we have. But ultimately a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about meaning is something like might be better framed as connectedness, right? So yeah. are we, do we have an optimal grip in relationship to these things? And uh, John has this really beautiful concept of the transjective, right? Mm -hmm. So 
consider um, a cup, right? Yeah. So what is how how does a cup have its meaning, right? Um, it's not just subjective because I can't I can't make this a cup, right? Yeah. It won't function as a cup. But it's not precisely objective either because you can't make a computer easily recognize what a cup is because actually when you when you start dividing when you start trying to define what a cup is you find that there's an in virtually an infinite set of things that could be contained within the cup right is it this one's metal right you could have a, a ceramic cup you could have a plastic cup right it could be any number of colors you know we've got a, a loop on the outside really the meaning of a cup is emergent in the relationship between an agent and the arena and the, the motivational state of the agent right so cups have meaning to humans because we have a specific action capability. We can grasp a cup, mm -hmm. right? And we have a specific motivation. We need to imbibe liquids. So we can contain, we can put liquids in the cup, we can grasp the cup and we can drink out of it. Now, theoretically, I could make something this shape that's eight feet high, right? And four feet wide, and it's not a cup. It's not a cup because a human being doesn't have the action capability of interacting with it like a cup. Yeah. So the meaning of the cup isn't contained in the subjective or the objective. It's contained in what he calls the transjective. The transjective is not arbitrary. It's about real relationships between things in the physical world. Mm -hmm. The same sense, the meaning that we are oriented towards in life is about that um, is about cultivating connectedness in those real relationships. You have a subjective sense of, you know, what your relationship means, right? With a partner, but there's objective aspects to it, right? It's all socially negotiated and, and there, there's things that you just, you can't, you know, your, if your partner dies, you can't, impose your subjective experience of them continuing to exist into them actually walking into the room. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's what I think we're ultimately oriented towards is those, is those transjective meanings, those real relationships of connectedness and how do we connect better to the things that inherently uh, are meaningful in human life are inherently um, we, we have an evolutionary nature, right? We are supposed to be attuned deeply to, or um, we evolved, I should say, to be attuned deeply to the nature around us. So there's a kind of meaning that comes when you become deeply aware of what the bird songs in your local environment are telling you, what the trees are doing of what the soils are doing of what the, the seasons mean that, gives that sense of connectedness, right? You evolved to be a social animal. When you have well-cultivated social relationships, your life is meaningful. And that's, that's probably, I, I mean, I think once you start to see this, it becomes obvious why we're in the middle of a meaning crisis right now, right? Like how many people do you know who could tell you what an alarm call, the difference between like an alarm call and a bird song and you know what that tells you in the local environment that you're in 
How many people do you know who actually have a robust network of close, meaningful relationships with a diversity of different meanings, right? Like friends, elders, lovers, children, mentors, mentees. The average American now has only one close friend. And just like 15 years ago, that was three. So we've lost 66% of our friendships in like a a decade. We are disconnected. We're disembodied. Um, So it's like, yeah, we we literally, our, our lives are in some sense meaningless because we've sacrificed everything that gave them meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's um thank you for that. It's uh there's things I, I have spent a lot of time contemplating and exploring personally, but I I really like the way you've you've summed it up there and put a, a lot of eloquence on that. That's nice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And when when you talk about the um the evolutionary nature of it, there's a part of me that um sort of resonates deeply with it. And I, I, I have found myself on many occasions seeking to discover, recreate, emulate some version of what seems natural. And there's this sort of coherence between what is natural and what is right or what is good. Yeah. And, I, and I think that can get really complicated when we talk about personal relationships, especially between like men and women. So. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess I'm I'm curious, are you are you a father? Yeah. yeah. So so in that sort of context, the human context where yeah, nature and nurture are inextricably mixed, and you know, there's there's a lot of good reasons why we might want to move away from some of the things that were are in our evolutionary past. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you navigate that space? Like how did how do you translate that into the, the personal realm? Yeah. So nature is a weird word actually, like when we start digging into it. Um, mm-hmm. because it, so a human being is a product of nature and then whatever we produce then you would think is, is downstream of nature right so where's the dividing line is is anything yeah. unnatural um and the term nature like it uh pre-exists our understanding of evolutionary biology and most people don't understand evolutionary biology even to this day not well so we are often implicitly sort of using nature kind of calling on on meanings that are symbolic and deeper and that's not necessarily bad it's just that a lot of times we don't know what we're doing right mm-hmm. so someone pointed out once that like the paleo diet and the, the ancestral health paradigm it's it's kind of a recapitulation of the christian idea of the fall mm-hmm. right so maybe that's not a bad thing maybe the christian conceptualization of the fall was actually like really profound and it's important to to keep it around um but we have to examine like how much of that is like cultural dna versus something that actually derives from our our understanding of the science mm-hmm. so when i started conceptualizing evolving with play and, and nature i really tried to frame it within this evolutionary framework right mm-hmm. um, so in in that sense 
I don't think that it makes sense to sort of think in the terms, in the, this binary of natural and unnatural. It makes more sense to think in terms of na natural and artificial, right? Mm -hmm. So um, human beings create things and those things are very novel, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, we didn't evolve with cars, right? So our, you know, people don't get phobia of cars, particularly, they get phobias of snakes, but mm -hmm. cars are far, far more dangerous to us than snakes are. Right? So there's a way in which we can kind of outrun our, you know, our evolved nature by producing these new and novel things. And that's where you have this, this potential for mismatch. Um, so I like to move on trees and I think they're more nurturing, more nourishing for us for important reasons, because you can think of what is most real. There's a Jordan Peterson idea, but what is most real evolutionarily is what's been around the longest, right? Mm -hmm. so human beings have been tree climbing animals for 60 to 90 million years. Like that, that is the environment that shaped the fact that we have grasping hands, the fact that we have binocular vision, the fact that we have shoulders that have this massive range of motion, ball and socket joints, flat chests, vertical orientation, like even bipedalism probably evolved first in an arboreal environment. Yeah. So trees in some sense are more natural for us, right? Whereas, um, you know, ninja warrior obstacles are more artificial, right? Yeah. Now, the, the, the confusing part about this is that the nature of a human being is to be cultural. Right. So like, <clears throat> what is the natural way that a human being should move? Well, it involves like culturally specific ways of dancing, for instance, mm -hmm. culturally specific, say swagger, right? Mm -hmm. Here, here's how I kind of signal who I am, what my status is, et cetera, through my walk. That's, that's cultural. And <clears throat> we have that plasticity. It's natural to us, but there are certain aspects of movement that are, that are kind of, that are universal, right? So it's like every culture has different forms of language, but they all have language. It's yeah. natural for a human being to acquire language, and it is profoundly unhealthy for a human to be raised in an environment where they're not able to acquire language. So it's natural for human beings to engage in lots of locom uh, uh, locomotor exploratory play. That's mm -hmm. what parkour is. Now, what that's going to look like if you live in the Congo is going to be very different than if you live in the Kalahari. So, you know, doing a Kong vault is not necessarily a natural thing for a Kalahari Bushman, right? For a, a song yeah. as the people you work with, because that's not the type of environment that calls for it. Yeah. But, uh, but there are, but, but they all, but everywhere people are exploring the affordances of their natural environment. They're running, jumping, climbing, moving on all fours, swimming if it's available, there are those things that are that are primal. Yeah. When it comes to relationships, uh, again, we have uh, this is yeah. So I have a whole rant about this. <laughs> um, one of the big questions you find in this kind of ancestral space is like, is monogamy natural, or, or are we supposed to be polyamorous, or whatever this is? And it's like, well. Um, lifelong exclusive monogamy is not natural 
lifelong exclusive monogamy is a cultural product that's pretty specific to Western Europe, right? It's specific to to Christendom and you know uh, the Judeo Christian tradition in a way. But it's pretty good social technology. And that's a difficult balance for people to understand. The default, things can be natural and be really, really not healthy. Like right? arsenic. Not something we want to experience. Like yeah. you read a lot of ethnographic research. My, I, I've read something like 30 ethnographies. And I, I would say that the default human mating system is something like monogamy. Most people are in a mono, uh, socially monogamous relationship most of the time. Um, they those relationships last for two and a half to five years as we reach adulthood. Uh, about fifty percent of the people at any given time are going to be cheating uh, in that relationship. Uh, high status men will upgrade partners and stay with younger partners. So if you're the chief of the village, your wife is sixteen to twenty. Um, and if you're low status, then your your wife is in her 30s and 40s. Um, and all of this is controlled through a huge amount, or all of this results in a huge amount of intermittent partner violence um, and male-on-male and -male violence, right? Mm -hmm. People, uh, murder rates in a lot of these societies are around 30%, uh, which is like, you know, it's massively higher than the worst cities and you know that you could live in mm. so so what's natural in this case is is not necessarily what's best or what's healthiest um so we have to we have to deal with these conflicts that are inherent to our nature um so my 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 personal belief is that society and the lives of children are optimized when we choose to have faith in the cultural institution of monogamous marriage, even if it is not necessarily easy because it's not necessarily perfectly aligned with our nature, but what is perfectly not aligned with our nature also isn't easy <laughs> and very brutal. Yeah. I don't know if that is quite the question you were getting at, but hopefully yeah. it was you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, my, I, what I take away from that is, is, yeah, we have to think about it on a case by case basis, and it's it's not as simple as more natural is better, you know. And I think no, it's a, it's a um, there's an interesting. Uh, so people talk about the naturalistic fallacy. The naturalistic fallacy is what is natural is therefore good, right? Yeah. And I think you know you can make a really strong case that. Uh, Lots of intimate partner violence and rape in a society is natural, um, and I think that you know virtually anyone's going to tell you that that's that's not good. They'd rather live in a society that doesn't have those things. Um, you know, a fifty percent child mortality rate is natural. But just any any parent ask them if they want to go live in that natural <laughs> setting. They're going to tell you no. So yeah, it, the naturalistic fallacy is a fallacy, but in in the way we think about it, I think it's it might be useful to balance the concept of the naturalistic fallacy with the concept of lindiness. Are you familiar with lindiness? No. So this is a concept that was uh, defined by Nassim Taleb. And he pointed out that uh, 
there's a that there's a kind of a, an opposite relationship for age with cultural products compared to um, biological systems. So the 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 older a biological system is, the shorter you predict its lifespan is, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm 40 years old. You know, my predicted lifespan at this stage in my life is like another 40 years. Yeah. Right. Now, if I'm 70 or maybe I'm 80 already, it might be another 10 years. Yeah. But the older it is, the, the sooner you're going to die. Now, what we find with cultural products is the opposite. If something is still in circulation now that's been around for a long time, it's likely to continue to stay for a long time. So if you look at, you know, the latest, most popular, coolest books in the 19th century, and you look at the books that were still being read in the 19th century that come from the 15th century, we're still reading all the books that were from the 15th century, they were reading in the 19th century, yeah. but we're not reading almost any of the books that were popular in the, uh, in the 19th century, right? Right, yeah. So uh, an institution like like uh, like marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Marriage is, is, has been around now by human standards for a really long time. Polyamory is really recent. So the the lindiness of marriage is much higher than the lindiness of polyamory. Um, which, which is more likely that in a hundred years or a thousand years, people are still going to taverns and drinking alcohol or that people are still using Tinder. Yeah. So this idea of like old evolutionary friends as being something stable across time, something that we need to at least be attentive to is a really powerful idea as well. Um, another another example of this kind of line of thinking is uh, Chesterton's Fence, if you're familiar with that. G.K. Chesterton was a conservative Catholic um, English writer and thinker. And he said, you know, if you're, you know, imagine you're on a walk and you have a conservative and a, and a progressive who are on this walk and they come across a a fence mm-hmm. and they can't see any purpose for the fence. The progressives um, progressives tendency is going to say, just tear the fence down. It's not serving any purpose. Yeah. Conservatives is going to say, if you can't tell me what the purpose is, then you don't get to tear it down yet because there's a chance that it actually has a really important purpose that you're not seeing. Yeah. And that's the sort of conservative tendency. But a lot of times we, when we're looking at something in our culture, um, there are lots of reasons why things were done in a specific way that won't necessarily be clear to us in the moment. Uh, Joseph Henrik's book, The Secret of Our Success, is an incredible deep dive into how culture evolves and how it evolves in a Darwinian sense that we're not very good at rationalizing our way through. Mm-hmm. And so we we actually need to be a lot more cautious in how we sort of throw away uh cultural cultural products um he gives the example of taro taro is a is a root that is a starchy root vegetable that's you know used all over the world uh in the tropics it's poisonous it'll poison your brain right Mm -hmm. and the traditional ways of preparing it i think have something like 64 steps 
And we have no idea how they evolved those 64 steps. And if you ask them to explain it, they'll give you a bunch of superstitious stuff that doesn't make any sense to a Western rational mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of those steps may not be obvious, but if you just tried to think rationally about whether you would use those steps, you would almost certainly mess up and end up poisoning yourself. And people are poisoning themselves um, because it's become common in West Africa and they don't have a tradition of using it. And it is, um, and they haven't adopted all of the cultural technologies associated with it. And people are actually getting brain damage from it. So um, yeah, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I have long, long essays in my head sometimes. That's great. That's great. That's great. I feel like I just talk for hours. No, no, that's great. So, I mean, for me, like the way I think of it is, there's a natural human tendency to move, to explore, um, to engage with our environment. And the, that is constant. What's changed is, is our environment. And mm-hmm. so for me, an interesting dividing line is like between evolved and engineered, right? And so when we're engaged, like evolved versus engineered. Oh, yeah. Engineered, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if, if we're engaging in, a, in an environment that's primarily evolved, each object there has its own sort of life force. It has its own history. It has its own purpose. Um, and so the engagement with it is richer in a way. It's more, it's an engagement with another life force sort of on, on par with ourselves. When we're engaging primarily with engineered objects, uh, it has a much simpler life history, much more sort of reduced realm of possibilities. It's a lot less stimulating, right? It's generally designed for a specific purpose. And so to me, it's like a, a big part of what I understand that you're you're doing, that I'm doing, that I think a lot of people are doing is, is trying to say, well, okay, if, if we were just to follow this natural trajectory of, of always just in, engaging with what's around us, like we go into a pretty bad place, right? We just eat the food that's easiest and, you know, do whatever falls into our laps. And, you know, we end up with, with beer bellies and glued to the TV. Right. And so it's like our, our ancestral evolved instincts have been sort of coerced and co-opted and corrupted in this way that we have to sort of actively fight against in order to reclaim something that is used to be natural and was uh, just just happened without us even thinking about it. And now it has to be like a, a, a conscious effort. Right. And so, so when I try and apply that to, to relationships, it's, it's like, what is that, that essence? What is that sort of dynamic that stays true sort of independent of whatever culture we happen to be in, whatever cultural moment we happen to be in. And I don't, I don't have a good answer for it, but to me, I don't, are you familiar with Tantra at all in that, that sort of world? Familiar, but yeah. no. it, to me, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a panacea, but to me, it's a really compelling sort of way of engaging with, with this stuff. And, you know, talking about sort of yin and yang, uh, it's often, talked about in terms of masculine and feminine energy, but not necessarily in a male body and a female body, right? The idea is we, we all have these different kinds of energies within us and the act of becoming intimate with another person is like sharing those energies with that person. 
And so, so to me, it's like, I mean, I really liked your, your description of, of meaning as a sort of this emergent quality of, of relationship, because that's, that's very, very clear in tantric practice, right? It's, it's this very deep engagement with another human that creates by this exchange of energy creates this, this higher sense of, of connection with, you know, who, know, who knows what it is, but something bigger than the individuals involved, you know, and, and it's something that I find in, in the, the sort of cultural landscape, there's so much talk about, you know, what is a woman and what is a man and, okay. you know, and how do we, how do we engage in a, in a, a proper way? And, you know, what's, what's the role is a man supposed to be a provider or not? And, you know, all this sort of garbage that's gets so overwhelming and confusing for, for so many of us, you know, and I, I think, it, I mean, a big, a big part of what I try and do personally and, and sort of with the people I, you know, I come into contact with is, is in a, I think in a similar way to what you described with, with movement and getting to this, this sort of the natural basis is trying to distill like what are the natural elements of our relationship as humans and how to ex- exchange that energy in a way that's, you know, mutually beneficial and, and, you know, create something greater than the, the sum of its parts. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, go back to the idea of monogamy, right? <clears throat> Lifelong committed monogamy. Um, falling in love is natural, right? Like there's this idea that romantic love was invented by the French poets in the 16th century. It's like, no, every culture in the world has stories about, you know, beautiful young woman who falls in love with a beautiful young man and flee because she was promised to be married to you know, the old rich man, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Like those stories wouldn't exist if that underlying potential to fall in love wasn't there. When we look at hunter forger cultures, we do find that like mostly, <clears throat> well, maybe not mostly, but in many cases, people are choosing each other, right? They're choosing mm-hmm. each other because there's a strong attachment. Um, so it's natural to fall in love. It's natural to be committed to one person. It's also natural to be attracted to other people. It's also natural to be jealous when your partner is attracted to other people. Um, so there's a sense in which you can take what is natural and you can cultivate it to its most um, perfect expression. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it might not be natural to engage in lifelong monogamy, but it's virtuous. <laughs> Right, or maybe it's even when done well, it's virtuosic. Um, and I think we can look at, you know, any number of aspects of relationship. Something like, you know, uh, the way in which uh, sex is uh, engaged with. There's a you know kind of default level of what you'll expect anywhere, and then there's love as an art, right? And yeah. it can be taken to a greater art. Uh, parkour right children in every culture in the world will engage in exploratory locomotor play but the people who practice parkour now i believe are the best that have ever existed at this thing yeah. right because it's become something that's imbued with a sense of purpose and of art mm-hmm. it's it's something that people are intentionally cultivating so I think we can take those things in our lives that are inherently deeply meaningful, like um, 
a primary romantic relationship, like our sex lives, like our locomotion, like our food, right? Uh, like any any number of these like really fundamental things and we can actually turn them into art something like you know Taoism and Tantra and uh, there are expressions of that of of the you know or you know like the Japanese do a bunch of these really weird little things that like let's let's just like make tea the most like what is the most insanely virtuous way that we could conceptualize the process of making tea mm-hmm. how could that transform you as a person if you went incredibly deep into it um and that's that's a big part of japanese culture right uh, what does what, what does virtuous mean to you virtuous um so so john uses virtuous and virtuosic to distinguish between something that is uh, virtuous in the sense of it is both exemplary and positive and virtuosic to to do something just to do really really to do to you something that's done really really well yeah right so um you could be a virtuoso of serial killing yeah right but it's not a virtuous thing to do yeah does that make sense yeah, no, I think so. I think so. And it's, I mean, my understanding that's sort of embedded within the concept of right relationship. So it's it's yeah. something that yeah. tends toward a, a deepening of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Virtuous is, um, you know, the, the, I think in the sort of the Greeks and the, the Jews, the the Jewish tradition, the Judea, uh, Judaism, they give us a kind of system of virtues, right? Mm-hmm. That was, you know, they had they had different systems of virtues that then came together to form the kind of Christian set of virtues. And I cannot remember them exactly, um, but the the kind of everything is in relationship to these higher order principles of the good, the beautiful, and the true. Right? Mm-hmm. And those are all interdependent. If things are not if there's not beauty in life, there's no motivational force, right? Um, and then in relationship to beauty, we have to be able to, to be true. And all of that has to be in to, for oriented towards the betterment of, of everybody, um, of the system of, of, of the of being, mm-hmm. right? And then to achieve that, we need courage. We need equanimity. We need humility, right? Um, and I, I don't, I can't remember exactly which are the the Greek virtues and the and the, and the Jewish virtues, but they they come together to create this very good system of, mm-hmm. of virtues, and that is something that I think uh, is I'm very committed towards cultivation, right? I think that that one of the fundamental problems that we have in our society is that we have lost a theory of virtue. Right, that we've collapsed our theory of virtue to successful hedonism. Um, yeah. And so it's like, how much can you earn so that you can spend it on better toys, better sex, better drugs? Um, and I think that's ultimately, 
not a meaningful way to engage with reality. Yeah, yeah, no, no argument here. So this 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 thing I keep coming up against with um, you know I've been exploring your podcast, your work, and it's like I I understand the value of being clear and sort of explicating things as precisely as possible. But at the same time, so much of your work seems to be about a different kind of cognition, a different way of engaging with the world. Um, and, and to me, like my association with uh, a word like, like virtue or, or, you know, right relation, uh, the connotations are very sort of theoretical. And I, for, for me, I'm used to um, complex systems of theory that then have very little to do with reality, right? So people are going to be talk, talking about virtue all day, and then they're doing all kinds of crazy things yeah, in, yeah. in real life, you know? And so for me, it's like, I, I'm uh, one of the things that really compels me about your sort of constellation of, of work is this idea of, of approaching relationship sort of from the bottom up, you know, and, and feeling when it's right. You know, because it's like, if, if we're talking about, okay, so I have this scheme in my head, I want to be in relationship with my mind, my body, the self, the others, and I've got it all sort of calculated there, but then I've got to move and like, I've got to actually like act in day to day life. And I can't be going through this mental calculus all the time. And there has to be a certain level on which we sort of instinctively know and feel if something's good, bad, right, wrong, is this constructive or destructive, you know? And so for me, it's like, How does your practice, because your, your practice is, is much more than just a philosophy in, in the, the sense of a, you know, a written book. It's, it's a way of, of being in the world. You know, so how does your, and beyond the, the courses you might do or the, you know, the, the sort of the finished product you're putting out into the world, in your day-to-day -day life, how do you engage with this like how do you how does it feel in your body when you say yes this is right um this is the right step to take how do you how do you engage with that um i think we use words a lot because they are easy to translate right mm -hmm. and this is why i tell a lot of people like you If you, if you enjoy what I'm talking about and you resonate with it, you have to come experience it because it can't, the, we're, we're still juggling propositions, right? You can't, it's like, I can talk to you all day about why nature connection is important, but like the first time that you see a ferret because you listened to, the, to what the Robin was telling you, that, that will hit you in a way that no amount of words will hit you. Um, there is a felt sense of right, right? Like this is the right thing to do. But just like a good theory, it can fail you, right? Like sometimes you're like, man, this feels like the right thing. And you're like, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, we, we debuted a membership before it was ready and uh, before we were really ready to do it in the uh, uh, beginning of uh, 2020, right? In response to COVID. Mm -hmm. and help everybody get get their their practice in and i remember like oh it was, it was so had such a great sense of certainty that like this was the right thing to do 
and it, it was you know cost me twenty thousand dollars um yeah set me up for you know I, I wasn't able to engage with my physical practice for may to october because of the commitments that i made yeah um it, intuition is real intuition is your your subconscious mind picking up on patterns that are below the awareness of your conscious mind right mm -hmm. um you you have way more processing power in the subconscious than in the conscious mind yeah. but education but intuition is just like uh theory or propositional knowledge in that it it, it misleads us right uh our our center our, our essentially our intuition is heuristic right so uh, we have positive expressions of that and people applaud them and call them intuition and we have negative expressions of that and people damn them and call them prejudice but it's the same system yeah it's the same system so the 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 thing is to be oriented towards transfer positive transformation to have the right highest value which for me is love specifically the greek concept of agape mm -hmm. right to do that with deep respect for truth and for mystery right so it's kind of like logos agape Tao. that's kind of like at the top um and then you're you're trying to pay attention to the feedback in the system and to learn from the mistakes to feel when when it feels right um you know, this is something that parkour is really powerful for, right? Like you, you know, when you're ready to do a jump, right? And mm -hmm. and sometimes you'll make a mistake, even when you it feels right. But as you get better, your intuition gets better and, and better and better. And you get to this point where you feel like, like, if my body tells me that I can do this jump, like, if I really know, if I really feel it, I feel invincible. Mm -hmm. And you, you really get to know what yes feels like inside your body mm -hmm. so what is what does your daily practice look like in terms of a movement of movement yeah. um, it, it it changes over time ideally it might look like something but then life happens right so my my personal reality right now is that i have uh I sprained my ankle six weeks ago and I've been struggling with um, something that we're, it looks like we're diagnosing, or it's looking very likely that it is something called complex inflammatory response syndrome, which is in relationship to mold exposure. So I've been dealing with chronic fatigue issues for the last seven years. So uh, it's been particularly bad in the last few months. We're actually buying a new house and moving out in the next three weeks so that we can get away from <laughs> the mold situation yeah. that should help but i've been kind of steadily coming up and improving my health uh because of that but my ability to sustain physical practice was very limited actually for a while so i was practicing you know one or two times a week and i was really just doing parkour because that's the central aspect of my practice yeah. Uh, so right now my body seems to be much more uh robust so in the last five days i've done um well, since last 
so I, I had a cold and then I got over my cold and then so last Wednesday I did a cardio session and I did a parkour session um and then Friday I did a parkour session Sa Sunday I did a parkour session uh Monday I did uh strength um work which was just pull-ups dips tuck planges um and front squats um just like a quick hour-long workout not super heavy loads right um but just building myself back up oh and i was doing some dunking on a low rim uh yeah. working myself back up to my dunk that's one of my goals for for this year okay and um and then yesterday i just went into the gym and did like uh a cardio session and um uh, stretch uh, mobility uh, and some mobility. I'm more very simple. I'm working on pancakes, uh, yeah. deep squats, um, uh, uh, and opening up my thoracic chain. So I'm using a a yoga wheel, mm -hmm. and I just sort of like spinal wave isolations on the yoga wheel. So pressuring yeah. my back into a more open position. I do pullovers on the yoga wheel with a kettlebell, and then I do bridge rotations on a wall. Um, so that's all just kind of like for me it's just eating my vegetables right now is the way i think about it it's not the stuff that i really like to do but yeah. i've lost some mobility through uh just being super stressed with entrepreneurial stuff having health problems and just not being able to be super engaged in my practice at times yeah. um and so i'm just kind of building it back up i'm doing my cardio in the gym which uh is super unusual for me but it's because of my ankle sprain and it's just less stressful for me to walk on a treadmill right now than run yeah. outside so as soon as my ankle is sufficiently healed and i don't have any limits then i'll be uh, i'll be switching out and doing my runs outdoors yeah. but um yeah that's what it looks like right now yeah yeah you mentioned that the, the entrepreneurial bit and that's something i find uh, pretty much universally is it's like you've got your your practice you get it to a place where you're you're ready to share it to to teach other people and all of a sudden it becomes a business and it's like oh god how do i how do i find that balance right between actually doing it and sustaining the practice versus promoting it selling it you know making it into a, a viable way of living economically you know yeah so it comes and goes like this time last year i was uh i was cold dipping every day Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was doing my meditation every day and I was, uh, I had this, uh, specific beautiful tree that I was visiting a couple times a week. And I was going a lot to, um, this beach where I was doing a lot of rock climbing and running on the driftwood and vaulting mm -hmm. over a fallen driftwood box, which was really, really wonderful time in my practice. I was also, uh, training MMA then, mm -hmm. um, and really enjoying doing a lot of MMA sparring. And I expect that I'll be back to all that uh, pretty soon. Um, but right now I, I'm in a place of like uh, w feeling like I need to be very focused on building my capacity and taking very few risks as I rebuild that capacity. And uh, like I've done so much of the time in nature and so much of that stuff, which I think is you know definitely the best and where I want to be and where I, I want to uh, lead people. Um, but it's actually easier for me to kind of dig into some of the areas that I'm less competent at by using these mm -hmm. other tools. Yeah. So, so in that, in that context, like, how do you, how do you attend to your relationship with, with nature? 
so I take a walk every day. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of, you know, the idea that we, that we need sunlight, that sunlight is like getting sun is like getting liquid, like getting water, right? It's like, you just, yeah. you got, you got to do it. So I, I, I take my walk, oh, my dog for a two mile walk basically every morning. And that is my, my nature time right now. And it is my outdoor, you know, getting sunlight time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where that is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, up until the weather got really cold here, I was also usually spending about 10 minutes every morning, just sitting on my back porch and, uh, doing my, my sit spot and watching the birds. It's been really fun because the birds actually, uh, so we have the, the peak of the birds is in May and then mm-hmm. by midsummer, a lot of the birds have either migrated or move up in the high country or somewhere they're not here in the lowlands by my house and then by fall they're actually like a lot of them are back so right now uh well the robins are coming back the toeys are coming back um it's just kind of like super fun to see the see the animals so i i would do that um now it's like snowing so it's a little bit harder to bundle myself up enough to go sit outside and stay for 10 minutes without moving around yeah yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the major differences um, between, I don't know what Vivek would call the propositional knowing and all the other sort of constellation of knowings, to me, is it's like with the propositional knowing, it's kind of like, okay, you understand it, you've got the theory, and then you're done. And like, you're kind of like, you've got that step on the ladder, and then you can move up to the next one. And with the other forms of knowing that are about relationship, it's, it's about practice, right? And it's about just like getting it done every day. And for me, that's something, uh, it's, it's just a constant source of humility, you know, because no matter how good you were yesterday, if you're not doing it today, like you're just not doing it, you know, it's about, it's about being in that. And so, so yeah, and I think it's something like, it's just, it seems to me like you're in a really interesting place with that, like with the injury coming out of the, the COVID and the, the whole sort of things. And, and I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, how does that feel to you? Like, do you feel like you're engaged in the meaning and it's like your practice is still strong, even though it's, it's going through this sort of different, different avenues, or do you feel like, no, I'm just like, I got to wait till I build up my strength and then it'll be okay again. I mean, I am, I'm, so I've come to accept that, like, I want to do a lot of things and I will often not be able to do all of them at the same time. Right. So recently I have been meditating only like once a week. Right. Um, I haven't been climbing trees a lot recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is okay for me because I know that I've done it for years and years now. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can let certain things come in and out of my practice. And I recognize that for my personal ecology of practices, uh, there are things that, that are more vital for me to sustain. And it's also about stacking your life, right? So mm-hmm. I've been pr- pr- primarily training over the last, since I sprained my ankle at um, a, uh, an indoor ninja warrior gym that's slowly mm-hmm. becoming also a parkour gym. Um, we're, we're, we're harassing them all the time to build us more parkour equipment in there. 
slowly yeah. complying and it's, it's pretty fun, <laughs> but it's a great, it's a really amazing facility. Um, it's a, it's really great because all of my kids enjoy being there and my wife enjoys being there. So my wife, uh, started parkour with me 17 years ago and she, I'm six, two, my training partner at the time was six, two, my wife's five, two. So she's actually very naturally athletic, had a wonderful fluidity, but she was very discouraged because she just couldn't do the same size of jumps that we could do. And also yeah. she didn't enjoy being at height. She has more of a natural fear of heights. So we'd climb up on high things and jump between them. And it just wasn't for her. And that's what she thought parkour was. So she kind of dropped parkour and she was rock climbing and trail running and doing Muay Thai. And we started taking the kids to the ninja gym and she just started doing it. And she's like, Oh, I'm, I'm having fun. And I was like, you're doing parkour, right? It's like, it's obstacle coursing. Yeah. Uh, but, but she is enjoying it. Right. And so it's like, this is a way that I can, I can stack everything. I can enjoyable time with my family. I can train. So it works for me really well right now. Mm -hmm. And I have specific technical goals, you know, improving my climb ups, improving certain flips, improving certain vaults that are very easy for me to address in that specific environment. Yeah. So I know that come spring when the weather's really nice, I'm going to have my base built up for parkour. Where I'm going to be really strong, really fit, have my skills dialed in and having spent the last decade plus primarily training in nature. Um, it'll be really easy for me to boom, readapt to that situation. Yeah. Uh, so that's why that kind of makes sense in my, my, my particular situation. And then for me, uh, parkour is the practice that I get the most out of. So the martial arts come and go, dance comes and goes, various other things. I, I, I know that I will come back to them, mm -hmm. but I have to have something that I'm practicing. <laughs> And it's like, just, I don't think this is what everybody needs to do. But for me personally, parkour is the one practice that I need to do every week. And with, with my goals and my health and everything, the strength and conditioning aspect is really valuable to me right now. Um, in particular, because of the, the SIRS, I've really struggled to sustain the volume of training that I would enjoy doing. And that, you know, would help me unlock some of the skills that I want. But I think just building up my cardiorespiratory capacity is a really big aspect of that. It's something that I never did because I was always a power athlete, always, you know, trying to jump farther, always trying to run faster. So I was like, ah, no, no, I can't do, can't do lots of running volume. It's going to, it's going to sap my gains. It's like, well, turns out that if you don't have a big enough aerobic engine. It actually makes you harder to recover. So right now it's like, recover some of this mobility that I've lost from, from having to be so, too sedentary with, with the work situation that I was in, um, rebuild my, some of my skills and build up my aerobic engine so that I'm just really ready as my health comes up and my motivation comes up and the weather improves to kind of build out my practice, uh, into a broader, subset. The thing that's, gonna, that's really cool is that I have a bunch of students now. I have people who are moving into the area, people who are traveling from further away, who are coming to train with me, which basically that all died during COVID. And so yeah. the community aspect of it is going to be much more rich in, um, in being able to like dive deeply into all the different aspects of the practice, uh, starting and then sometime, you know, maybe uh, March. 
Okay. So, uh, so it's kind of like that's the trajectory. Um, nice. So yeah. So I think I think I have a lot of equanimity about the fact that I can let go of certain aspects of my practice for a while, just mm-hmm. because I've done them for so long. Right. It's like. Yeah. I've been I've been practicing meditation for 15 years. It's like if 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 I only get to do it once a week right now, it's not gonna, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I know we're getting close to the end of our allotted time. Do you do you have a hard stop at? Uh, I don't. Okay. 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 Well, uh, there's definitely one question I want to get, and I promised I would. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine a a young person. Uh, who's looking to develop a practice, not just copy yours, but yeah. something maybe parallel to yours, inspired by yours. He's a, I mean, there's a friend of mine asking basically. Yeah. He's, he's into parkour, um, really likes a lot of the stuff you do, but you know, doesn't, he lives in Spain, can't travel to, right. to, to where you're at. And is wondering, you know, what, what advice would you give to a person who wants to explore, loves movement, and wants to have it be a meaningful practice. Like what, what sort of orientation would you give them? I mean, I think it would definitely, you know, it helps to know more about it. What I, my generic advice that I give everyone, you know, like this guy's already doing parkour, but my generic advice is like, uh, start with walking, right? Like just get outside, move in nature. Um, it's the, like, on average, people walked about 10 miles a day in the most of our evolutionary past. Most mm-hmm. of us walk like less than a mile today. So it's like, you'll do a lot for your health by just walking every day and yeah. it'll expose you to nature. You go outside and do it. You'll see the world. And then if you feel like you want to climb a tree, climb a tree. Um, like let give yourself the freedom to do it. Mm-hmm. Balance on a rail, balance on a curb. There's so much opportunity that's out there we have to change our attitude towards how we see it. Um, then as you do these things, start to recognize what really lights you up. What's going to give you the motivation to do the other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, it's uh, when you, when, you know, when you hear me lay out movement, mindfulness, nature connection, community, you got to do parkour, martial arts, dance. It's like, it's, it's, it's so overwhelming actually. You have to install things kind of piece by piece. And you want to start with the things that are, that are going to make, that are going to get you really excited about the practice. And that'll make the biggest changes because that'll help you. um, That'll help you stay motivated. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's, that's the thing. It's like, okay, if it's parkour for him, if he knows he's doing it, it's like, make sure you're doing the parkour and then, Maybe try to take it into nature if you can. Find some beautiful nature near you. Um, while you're out there in nature, learn about the trees. Like what what tree, what species of tree is it that you are climbing? Right? What kind of wood does it have? What kind of animals live in it? What kind of fruits does it produce? What's its life like? How long does it live? Let your curiosity start to guide you into a deeper appreciation for a connection of the world that you're engaging with. Maybe you're in the city and you. You love moving on urban terrain and you can start learning about the architecture. What kind of architecture is it that, that makes for great parkour? Why is it there? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I find it personally really hard to do or have in the past, but I think journaling is so valuable. 
as an aspect of a practice. If you want to have that transfer that we're talking about, reflecting on your practice, having an intentional reflection period on your practice is going to do it. And if you do that via journal, then you get to look back. You get to create a stronger relationship between your past self and your present self. Mm-hmm. So I've been logging all my workouts over the last couple of years, all my training sessions. What's really cool is that I can now say, I can now see my progress much more clearly. And I can, and I can see the things that are interfering with me much more clearly and say, okay, mm-hmm. this is a problem that keeps coming up. I keep seeing this. Mm-hmm. How do I address that? Um, so I really, really th- am a huge, I think that people think about a lot about like programming their training so that they're going to make gains. Mm-hmm. I actually think that logging your training is more powerful than programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that set your goals and then log your training and see, just pay attention to the patterns. And when things are moving you to where you want to go, keep doing it. <laughs> when things are taking you away from where you want to go, figure out another way. Um, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that, that journaling aspect right now. I think it's really, really important. Um, and then the other aspect that I think a lot of people struggle with is the social aspect of it. When they're adopting these more niche practices, right? It's like if you... If you want to practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, maybe that's easy, right? But if you want to, if you want to do roughhousing the way that we do it, it's like that's really, really hard to try to find the right people who can do it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times people make the mistake of wanting to sort of give their understanding or their perspective, their paradigm to people like whole and have them completely adopt it. And most people just aren't ready. So what works better is to sort of slowly introduce it right? Mm -hmm. Rather than say, Hey, I want you to come do parkour with me. Choose something else and then do a jump and see if they follow suit. Yeah. Don't say, Hey, let's get together to go roughhousing. Let's go to the beach. See if you can engage them in a wrestling match at the beach. Yeah. By doing that, there are people who will, who will respond to what you're doing. And then you can start intentionally cultivating that those friendships and introducing more to them but i think a lot of times the desire is to how do i convince my brother to do this and my brother's a computer geek who never leaves his room and only plays halo it's like don't start with him (laughs) (laughs) best way to convince your brother is don't start with him get all your other friends doing it and start with the friend who's most likely to enjoy doing it because he'll convert the next one and they'll convert the next one. And eventually, if all your friends are out doing parkour with you, your brother might be like, hey, that seems interesting. Maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. yeah you, you hit on something really interesting there, which is uh, comes up for me um, just perennially, which is like the aspect of sharing a practice and teaching as being part of the practice. Because yeah, yeah. so often in, in the sort of space of health and wellness and stuff, what we see is someone reaches a very high level personally and then says, okay, I've got my system. Here's my system. You learn it. And what I think a lot of people don't recognize is like part of that system, part of that evolution of what makes that person where they are is the ability to share it. And that doesn't become a part of the practice. And that's not an explicit part of the practice. And I think that's, that's a, a huge problem because I see it. I mean, I see it for myself, for my clients, people I work with. It's like, you can have a, an amazing practice, but if it's only focused on yourself and your own health and your own well-being, it's not complete. 
it has to be giving it back to people, sharing with people and, and building that, that sense of community. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think, I think it was possibly it was my friend, Matt Thornton, who said this, he's a, he runs a jiu-jitsu school, a very successful jiu-jitsu school, straight blast gym. Um, he said, you know, uh, a black belt should be someone who can teach, right? Yeah. Like you shouldn't be giving black belts if someone isn't ready to teach. So the idea is that that's, that's part of the preparation. That's part of the mastery journey. I don't know if Matt said that. I'm thinking it's Matt, but if I misattributed him, I apologize. But I think it's a really interesting idea that part of attaining mastery is the capacity to share what you've done. And there's an old saying I like, which is he who teaches learns. The, the, the process of sharing something helps you understand it better. A lot of people in the movement industry are very paranoid about people stealing their stuff and um, I think it's ultimately very self-destructive. It's like you can't really own movement particularly. What you can do be is be extremely skillful at it and at coaching, and then nobody can steal your ability to coach, right? Yeah. It's like it takes yeah. it takes years to cultivate, so you know, good luck. Um, but what I tell my students when they come to a, a seminar is like, go share it with people as soon as you can because you'll remember it better you'll understand it better if you have to try and explain it to somebody else yeah so yeah i think that i think even beyond that i mean just tying it back to, to what you said earlier it's 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 a adds in another level of of relationship you know it's not just about me and my health it's about my relationship with the world you know and, and i think that's as human animals we need that yeah i think that everybody needs relationships that are um like follower to authority, right? Peer to peer. And then as you mature and are ready as authority to follower, right? Like those are all inherent parts of the human experience. And you want to, again, cultivate right relationship in those, those capacities. How do I interact with someone peer to peer? How do I interact with someone as an epistemic authority? How do I interact when I'm the epistemic authority? Um, and how do I interact with people who I have multiple relationships or I have, you know, different types of relationships along that? Mm -hmm. I may be an epistemic authority in parkour, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily make me an epistemic authority in political theory, right? And a lot of times teachers sort of end up being given authority in a broader way than they really deserve and step into that in a way that's not healthy for them or for their students. Um, so I think having good nuance in playing those roles is a really important part of living a, a well-balanced life. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we come back to that idea of what, what is right relationship? How do you, how do you define that? How do you know? How does that, is it not, I guess there's a good truth and beauty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, it's all those things, you know, beauty is nice, the boulder, truth is relative and, and good. You don't know until you try, you know, like, I, I guess yeah. like for, for me, like in, in a, maybe a specific example, like I, as you're, as you come into that role with someone, you know, you're, you're uh, someone signs up for, for a course or asks you for, for training in some way, like, how do you, how do you set the bounds to say, 
this is good, this is right, this is right relationship, or, or you know, I mean, do you have like a concrete example when those sort of boundaries have been tested, when someone's asked you to do something, you weren't really sure if it was right or wrong, like. Um, I, so uh, I had a student, this was years ago when I was teaching uh, parkour, right, for, for the development of all of the but a student who uh, was a young woman who had had an eating disorder and she was um, athletic and beautiful, but she was just relatively more thickly built. She had a heavier body structure. Mm-hmm. She called me and she asked me, you know, like, is it going to help me do parkour better to lose weight? And I was like, yeah, of course it's going to help you to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, look back in the room that was such a naive response right yeah because i i I understood the explicit aspect of the question but not the implicit underlying aspect right there the question of whether ultimately weighing a little bit less is going to help her do parkour better is really not that important of a question (laughs) in my relationship to her as a student yeah right what was important was how does parkour impact her sense of self and how does that impact this underlying struggle she has in the relationship with her body mm-hmm. so in this sense she she came to me as an epistemic authority on parkour she was actually trying to get um she there was a, an implicit like basically therapeutic or psychological ask that was underneath it that I didn't recognize and wasn't able to meet in the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that was disastrous for her or anything. She's, you know, she's been very successful and, and, you know, has has navigated those waters in really admirable ways on her own. But, um, but I just look back on that. I was like, that was fucking stupid. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so that, that 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 just popped into my mind as an example of how we can we can get that confused and that like i'm a very um i'm a passionate self-educator so i do know a lot about a lot of things that don't necessarily have to do with my specific subject matter expertise that someone might be asking me for mm-hmm. um so that is a, a relationship that i have to negotiate a lot like yeah i, I may actually have a command of this subject matter that that you don't necessarily have that's not related to what we were talking about um or not related to what you're specifically paying for Uh, yeah and that um i don't know i don't i can't think of a a really great sort of specific exemplar of that but it is just something that that comes up right and that yeah one of the things that I do with the way people come to with the seminars that I teach, you know, I think there's a few things. One, my wife's at my seminars um, and my kids are there. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that humanizes me in a really important way. And my wife has, you know, legit complaints about me <laughs> and she's allowed to talk about them, right? Like I don't like if, if she's doing emotional processing in the event and it, ends up being about me being shitty at something like she's fully empowered to talk about that stuff like that you know 
like we've had that talk where I've had to be like, you know, she's been afraid that if she shows up and she's processing something about me, that like I'll be mad at her for, for talking about it. It's like, no, like this is really important. It's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, we, we try to do something like, I think for a long time, I tried to just undercut the, the guru thing. Like people just try to make you a guru, right? Like, yeah. and, and so I would just, I would do a lot of self-deprecating humor as a way of undercutting that. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would just sort of like, I don't know, I would dodge it. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than that, but I would be like dodging this, like, don't put me there. Um, and then what I realized was that I was actually not serving my students as well as I could in some sense by just avoiding it mm-hmm. because there's a way in which people actually symbolically need this aspirational figure of the leader of the charismatic leader of the the king, the hero, whatever it is. And, and I do have exceptional abilities in certain ways and I can play that role for somebody. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is that I need to not conflate myself with playing that role for other people. And I need ultimately for the student not to conflate me with stepping into that role. Mm-hmm. So over the last few years, I've been really playing with this idea of like, in this moment, in this frame, I'll be the king, right? So we will mm-hmm. we'll physically structure it like that. Like we'll have everyone in a circle and I'll be in an elevated stage giving a lecture, right? <laughs> and I'll hold court. Yeah. And then we'll close that, right? And then one of my staff will take over the lead role and they'll be leading and I will participate just like anybody else. And I'll complain if I don't like it, <laughs> you know? Like I'll, like not, not in an undercutting way, but in the like, I'm here with you experiencing this, not even aware of what's going to happen sometimes way. Yeah. So the people are humanized. And then I'll go sit around the campfire with people and I will try to be as open and human as I can and be really clear about this is me playing this role. And this is this is me being here in a peer-to-peer with you. So I try to have like a peer-to-peer level conversation with everyone who comes to a workshop. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting because it it seems to me like I I, I think for for you as the, the sort of provider of the experience that makes a lot of sense. That seems like you've done a lot of, of deep thinking there and like right on, like that's, that's great. Um, but it also seems to me like if I put myself in the the place of, I don't know, a hypothetical 20 year old kid who's like wants to come and, and see his, his idol yeah. to see you then later in the non-idol role, it's, it seems like that might undercut my view of you as the king, you know? And it's, it, it gets to me to this, the, it's, it's, it's actually something that it's a kind of an issue I have with, with Verveke's work as well as it's like, and I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to express it well, but it's in order to have a replacement to like a traditional God or religion or something, like we really need to believe in it. We need to believe it is the one true thing. And if we're manufacturing that through our theories, through our ideas, through you know these these sort of man-made or self-made constructs, it seems like there's a limit to the fervor with which we can believe in it. 
you know? And so I guess I'm just curious if, if you've come across that when it's like, when you're humanizing yourself and making yourself into a real person, do you feel like that's actually like empowering the people who look up to you to, to then say, Hey, if he's a real person, yeah, I'm a real yeah. person, maybe I can do it too. Or do you see it as like, Oh my God, my idol's dead. No, no, I definitely see it that way. Um, that like, you know, I've had that feedback from lots of students of like okay. the, the sense that they, that it was empowering for them to be able to be in a human relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my, my, like, kind of oldest student, Robert, has talked a lot about that. He, he went through the martial arts tradition and, uh, you know, that was all about, like, the, the sensei is infallible, right? Mm-hmm. So he was conditioned to that. And then he went through another natural movement school, which had this really big kind of cult of the of the, the leader. And he he experienced that. And then he, he came to work with me. And like, I guess at some point I was just like, I just told him, like, don't don't do that. <laughs> like I'm just a guy. <laughs> right? Yeah. And like, and hey, like whatever I've achieved, like you can achieve it if you just like want to do the work yeah um, and that was very transformational for him and i you know i can't say that there haven't been students who have you know have who are looking for that and left and found it somewhere else i don't know for sure mm-hmm. um, but i've never seen a sense of disillusionment that was negative in a student um that i can remember between the you know by the end of the course yeah and is there, is there something or someone that you look to as a similar sort of source of inspiration or like, what, what is it you see yourself moving toward? What do you model yourself on? Yeah, I try to have a few different targets for self-development, right? Mm. Um, but John is really someone I, I really deeply admire for sure. John Ravicki, I think that his humility and his um, embodiment of wisdom is really uh, extraordinary and mm-hmm. someone that's very admirable. I have a lot of admiration for Jordan Peterson as well. There's also things that I, uh, there's also flaws that I see in Jordan that I also see in myself. Um, mm-hmm. So Jordan was definitely like a huge hero for me uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he still is, and his work is incredibly valuable to me. But there was this interesting inversion that happened with me where I started to, there was a point earlier this summer where I like actively disliked Jordan on a certain level. Um, like I remembered how important his work was and I understood that it was really deeply important to what I was doing. Um, but when I saw him and I heard him talk and the things that he was talking about, like I would have this visceral sense of dislike for him, which was very, it was very interesting. It was just in, like, I had enough metacognition to be like, I'm experiencing this. And I also know that it's like, it's not necessarily that he's a, he hasn't become a bad person or I, you know, whatever. It's just like something's happening within me. You know, I think he was making mistakes um, in the way that he was putting himself out and he was falling into certain traps. Um, but I think that my experience uh, subjectively, if I was experiencing it had a lot to do with me and it had to do with the sense that the faults that I was seeing in Jordan were, very much in line with faults that I was worried about seeing in myself. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a way in which um, Jordan has become 
uh, a negative exemplar for me. He's both a really, really profound and powerful positive exemplar. And he's also a negative exemplar for me. Uh, not because I think he's an extraordinarily flawed person uh, in any sense, but because the faults that I do see in him, I just have a sense that they are uh, reflective of faults that I need to be particularly careful of in myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, that, that makes him a very interesting figure for me, kind of an intellectual relationship with, because I, I get to see so much of what I aspire to and also what I aspire not to in one person. Yeah. Um, uh, I have a kind of funny, funnily similar relationship with like Ido Portal, where like, uh, I mostly really disagree with Ido on a lot of things, hmm. but he's so charismatic and so articulate in the way that he expresses them that for a long time, I felt like disagreeing with Ido was some of the most useful intellectual work that I did. Right. It was like, thank you, Ido, for saying that so that I could see how wrong it was. <laughs> um, so, so I think that it's good to have these negative exemplars. Um, yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of people, there's really nobody in the movement world who, who I view as sort of like, on my horizon, if that makes sense, like someone I'm reaching towards being like. Um, there's a lot of people who I admire on a peer level who I want to absorb aspects of. Um, but I, I think that it's hard, it's hard for me to, to name anyone really other than John, who uh, is particularly like modeling um, a way of being that is particularly sort of aspiration for me. Yeah. How did, how did you meet him originally? What's that? How did you meet John? Um, actually, it was Jordan who uh, tweeted the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, uh, the start of that series on YouTube. So mm -hmm. I followed it. I'd heard of John before because people told me there were two professors at University of Toronto who were the most life-changing professors and you, you need to know about John. So then Jordan tweeted that he had released a YouTube series. I was kind of looking for more stuff. I was like, you know, I'm sure if there's one Jordan Peterson out there in all of academia, there's somebody else who, who could also put out amazing lectures if they chose to. So I, was, I had my eyes open for it. And so I, I dove right into a waking community crisis. I was listening to all of the, the, the full length podcasts from like the beginning. So I just missed the opportunity to interview Jordan um, right before his star went really big. Like I was waiting until I understood it well enough. Yeah. Um, and then I met him. He said yes to coming on the podcast. I was going to go out to Toronto, but um, the dates that they had available were too close to my daughter's due date. And then after that, the Kathy Newman interview happened and it was, it was like, um, it was too, he, he was too busy for, uh, for at that point. So with John, I was like, okay, no, I'm not going to wait. I need to, I need to get in this guy's inbox right away. <laughs> so yeah, after yeah. the first seven episodes, I just pinged him and said, you know, would you be interested in doing an interview with me? This is my background. This is my influences. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so we had a really amazing chat and he said he wanted to keep chatting with me after that. So we pretty much have talked every couple of months, at least, um, since then. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, when I when I hear him talk about, um, I mean, I found him through you. So, um, 
and I hear him talk about the the sort of creation of meaning and and the sort of neurological basis through which movement practice can be basically a, a substitute for for a religious source of meaning you know yeah. um and he he seems to be very focused on sort of flow states and how that's a possible way to get to a mystical state and a sort of felt sense of of connection with something bigger than the self you know is that is that something you actively sort of cultivate for yourself for your students so I'm not, a, I would actually say, I wouldn't say that John would say that physical practices are a substitute. I think that he and I would both say that they're, they're an extremely powerful aspect that needs to be much more incorporated into our approach to the idea of religion, right? Um, and he's pointing to this continuity hypothesis that flow states and altered states of experience are on a continuum. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and so, um, and we see this like in Sufi dancing and in ecstatic dance and all sorts of things that uh, or shamanism is very embodied. Um, you achieve yeah. these altars to his conscious for prolonged dancing, drumming, taking psychedelics. Um, so John's project is, you know, the religion that's not a religion, right? Um, yeah. The idea is that we, that, 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 religio means connection and that we fundamentally need connection when we meeting in life and we need a, a set of psychotechnologies that that can afford us things that religion traditionally afforded us um and part of that is or a huge part of that is actually studying and understanding the, the psychotechnologies of past uh, religious and wisdom traditions mm -hmm. um as well as trying to study the modern cognitive science and, and how those things interact um I, you know, I describe what I do as this kind of the reunification of philosophia and humanitia, the love of wisdom and the cultivation of the body. Um, and I think that, there, that you can't actually cultivate wisdom without the cultivation of the body. And I think that the original philosophers understood that, but it's been completely lost in modern academic philosophy. I think you could potentially say that this project, uh, and John has said it, goes beyond that and is a kind of re reintroduction um to to religio so yeah john john i think is you know his project is the reclamation of the traditional wisdom traditions and the psycho technologies of the traditional religions um and i think he he's i think he's actually open to the idea that that reclamation would eventually might eventually sort of uh, end up housed within one of the traditional religions, right? Like he he has a very strong attachment to Taoism and Buddhism, and um, you know who doesn't want anything that's going to be disrespectful to them. But his work's getting picked up by by Christians like Jonathan Pajot and Paul Vanderclay, um, and integrated, right? Uh, so the we need we need the function that religion played, right? Um, and the traditional religions are, are failing us um, and the replacements for them are not working well either so far. So understanding deeply from a cognitive science perspective, like re understanding the science and the philosophy and, uh, and, and the wisdom traditions, I think is, is really at the heart of his project. He's described, I, I describe what I do as a combination of a reunification of philosophia, right? Love of wisdom, 
and gymnasia. We need to reunite the body and the mind. We cannot be wise if it is not embodied. Um, John has described what I do as uh, having religious impact. It, 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 uh, it has that element of religio, the things that bind us together. Um, I, I have a certain hesitation about spirituality and religion as central to what I do um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Part of it is because, uh, just because I've seen that abused a lot. Um, and part of it is also because I don't want to uh, step so far away from what's central and valuable about what I'm doing that it actually undercuts the ability of people from a variety of different perspectives to engage with it and, and uh, get it. Um, but I do think that 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 these elements that I'm playing with, these relationships that I'm talking about, uh, are powerful in in reconceptualizing why religion is so necessary and what a healthy relationship to religion might be and i'm i'm still definitely exploring that myself like i've said i i i think i'm a non-theistic christian and i think is an important aspect of that uh yeah. but i i I, re I get a lot out of buddhism and i get a lot of taoism um, but fundamentally, the Christian story is the one that moves me the most, and I think that it contains certain truths that are really, at least narratively, are the most profound. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question anymore, if I'm just noodling. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, to me, the, the thing that, that comes up is like, I, I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time in, in different indigenous cultures and as a kid growing up in a lot of different churches and just different religious backgrounds and sort of the, the common denominator to me seems like there is a, a faith, a trust that this is right, mm -hmm. you know? And, and something that really struck me that, that John said is, you know, we have, when we talk about the psychedelic experience, we have set setting and we need sapiens as well. We need a larger frame with which we can make sense of what happened and use that to integrate it. And I actually, part of the work I do is I work as a, a psychedelic therapist as well. And, and I come across that again and again, is it's like set and setting are, are far from being sufficient. You know, the, the hardest work and the place where people generally spend the least amount of time, the least amount of energy is in the integration afterward. And so to me, it's like, if the, the project is creating a religio that's going to be really vibrant and you know really function for people that to me seems like the most difficult step of creating the framework around it because if it's if it's not just faith in you know because this book says so or that prophet said so right. like how do we as humans create a structure we can believe in you know or is it just going to come from relationship like where where is that going to come from yeah i I think ultimately I'm definitely still in the camp of, I don't know. Um, like, I, yeah. I think that, you know, the, the conceptualization of higher order intelligences of collective intelligence that exist above the level of the human agent. Um, I think that's just very clearly true from a scientific perspective now. Um, yeah. So I think that's the big question. I think it's something we're struggling with.
John would say we need to, to let go of the two worlds mythology. And I think that there's potentially versions of Christianity that can do that. Um, it's not the Christianity that most of us experience as dominant in the culture growing up. Um, if we go back to the Lindy, this is the argument I made with John, right? I think Christianity has a kind of Lindiness that a new religion that is not a religion doesn't necessarily have. Um, John's argument is that we're in a in a civilizational change that requires a completely new understanding of religion. Um, and I, I think both either could be true or both could be true in some way that's congruent that we don't yet see. Um, and I'm I'm personally just very satisfied with with living with the doubt and with continuing to wrestle with the question of God, I guess, as as Jordan Peterson would say. Yeah, that that to me seems sort of like the most compelling place to be. Is I think that's, I mean, that was the the downfall of religion was was tr trying to be um, conclusive on those sort of ontological claims of this is where our truth comes from, and then as science slowly revealed, well, probably not where it came from. <laughs> then, then you know that's that's how we got to this mess in the first place. And so it's like, to me, it seems like if we can replace that need for certainty with a a healthy respect for an engagement with the uncertainty like maybe that's the their placement i think the dow the, the first stands of the dow is uh for me it's very very hard to argue with right uh, the the way that can be spoken is not the eternal way whatever we define it's not gonna it's not gonna be eternal right yeah uh, the nameless is the mother of all things, right? That that which the mysterious aspect is always going to be beyond our full comprehension and it's always going to be the source of potential. Um, but the name gives rise to the 10,000 things and that's what the, I guess the, the new age types don't grapple with, which is that we, we actually do need the structure too. Right, we need that balance. We need to be able to to name things and create structure and order and hierarchy. Um, but the cool thing about Taoism is that it places mystery at the very, very top. And I think always mm -hmm. having respect for the mystery is it's definitely something that works very well with the scientific worldview, at least. But I do have to go, so I really enjoyed this, Eric, and uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. Likewise, likewise. Thank you.